0: All right. Uh, Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining in. Uh, I'm Seth Partnow. This is Colin Schatz. I am joined today by a friend of mine, uh, Chris Picard, who was formerly uh, with both the Clippers and Kings and can tell us a little bit more about what he's doing currently now, but he's he's currently an analyst who touches multiple sports. Um, First of all, thanks for coming on, Chris. And second of all, since you last had any sort of public-facing work, I don't know, six years ago? People <laughs> might not be, like, y- your name might not be known to people, but uh, why don't you introduce yourself and give a little bit of your uh, your origin story?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's funny, once you join a team, um, there's all sorts of things that are are best just, you know, to maybe not tweet or just stay, stay quiet. Um, but yeah, so... Um, I did, so I, I'm not really sure what a traditional path is and to be an analyst in sports. Um, I think if you ask anyone who works with a team, the stories um, vary, which makes it kind of fun meeting people with different teams. But you know, I did my schooling in civil engineering, um, so you can think of like the advancement of um, the construction industry. Um, and you know, what ended up being a precursor probably to my career in sports is I found a lot of resistance in the construction industry in terms of adopting, you know, uh, modern practices in terms of evaluating process efficiency, data, and all of that. Um, so towards the end of my, um, in my last year of my grad school, um, I connected with a PhD student who is now, I think was just, uh, I think it was announced, but it was just now joined the Astros in an executive role. Um, and he kind of pointed me like how to just general things to um, work in, or just work in sports, get your name out there. And so um, working with him, I went to the NBA Hackathon, which I got to meet you. Um, I uh, We did well there, was able to connect with Judd Witten at the Clippers. I was able to intern with them, which was awesome. They have a fantastic group there. And then When grad school finished up, um, I joined Luke Bourne and his newly formed group with the Sacramento Kings. And so I spent three years as an analyst with the Kings. I was working, you know, my first two years I worked with our coaching staff. This was the Dave Yeager staff, um, which was a really awesome opportunity on a lot of different levels. Um, And then in my last year, I worked more kind of on draft, front office type of work. Um, And then following that, Um, I moved on to where I currently am. Um, It's kind of a, uh, I work with Zealous Analytics, um, and I'm in essentially kind of a a dual position where I spend about um, a third of my time is on technical stuff. um, Specifically, I should say, working with their soccer group. So a change of sports. um, Working with their technical group, a third is kind of working, managing the soccer product, um, as we call it. And then a third is working with um, Redbird FC and their um, kind of endeavor to buy in and operate uh, European soccer clubs. So that was a long-winded way, a little bit of an arc of my, my current path to today.
0: So let's talk a, a little bit more just about how your, your, your path in. I mean, you, you, I think you kind of skipped over some stuff in terms of getting to the hackathon and then getting from there. To a team. I, I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit because this is, I'm sure it is for you. It is for me. Like, hey, how do you get, you know, how do, if I want a job in a front office, how do I blah, blah, blah. And I feel like everyone's looking for like a checklist answer when it's really, as you say, every person has a different story. And just hearing kind of those, uh, the aggregate of those stories kind of gives people a better sense for how they might be able to do it than just sort of, well, first you take these classes and then you do that. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, how did you decide you wanted to do that? And then what steps did you take?
1: Um, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I, I've been in sports my whole life. So my background is a swimmer. So ironically, I'm now working in two sports that I have uh, very little experience in. Um, and so I've always loved sports. I was passionate about it. Um, but I was more passionate about being in a space where things were moving quickly. Um, I there's one class at Stanford that um, has anything to do with sports, um, and it's like an intro to sports um, analytics. And I remember uh, Scott Powers was the the professor. He was a graduate or a PhD student at the time. And at the beginning of the class, they give you a sheet of kind of like, you know, what sports are you interested in and all that. And on the last question, I'll never forget this. He was like, is there anything else I should know? And I was like, you know what, what the hell? So I was like, you know, I really want to get into sports. I have no idea how, like, if you know anything, like, just would love to chat or whatever. He pulls me aside in the next class and says, like, hey, I'm in baseball. Um, I don't know anything about basketball, but, like, I'm happy to help. And so, you know, the first step was basically we took that class which was a 10 10 week class and basically he said why don't you just take the final project and start now um instead of waiting to the last two weeks and make it into something and then once you kind of have that why don't you turn into some blog posts um and write about it and a really important element of working in sports and working with the team is being very intimate with data finding insights and then digesting it and delivering it to an audience that probably isn't as technical as you are, or at least will not know the data as well as you do. Um, and so I did that and I took that final project. I wrote, um, this was the summer of 2016. So this was, uh, let's see, it was Raptors calves and the Eastern conference finals. And so I remember writing a couple blog posts. I actually sent it out to Nylon calculus and I was like, I think I'm pretty certain you received the email. Um, I was like, hey, here's my blog post. Like, I don't know how this works, but like, if you guys are interested, like, post it, whatever. And fortunately, you guys were gracious enough. And um, basically, I took that one project and took different kind of spin-offs, wrote about it, and shared it on Nylon Calculus. That was kind of my first step in saying, "Like, let's take data, let's analyze, let's present. And then when I, then, you know, fortunately, the NBA Hackathon was then that September Um, and I was like, what the hell? Like this might as well do this, right? Because this is where NBA teams are going to be there. It's so hard to get at the time was so hard to connect with uh, team members, mainly as I learned, it's because their schedules are insanely booked no matter what time of year it is. And so that was kind of like the main steps in terms of like getting myself in front of an NBA team. And there's a lot of luck involved
0: as well. Sure. and, and, I wanna jump in here and say that um, I think that the, as someone who, who went to this first several uh, hackathons as someone on the team side, one of the things that was that was notable was, um, I don't wanna say intimidated, but a lot of kind of the students that were there to to do the hackathon were sort of thinking, well, if we just do a really good project, they will come and see us. And very few of the, of the students came and actually introduced themselves and started chatting with kind of the team folks. And I think that was certainly one of the things that like, that that separated you from from many of the folks there. And there there was um, thinking back, I think there was like six or seven people who ended up um, participating in that hackathon ended up with jobs with teams. Um, Grant Fitment, who's now with the 76ers, mm-hmm. uh, Kathy Evans, who is uh, v- a VP with the with Monumental, with the Wizards now, and a few others. Who's I, I, I forget if it was that year or the next year. A few others who were with the Knicks and a few other teams. I think anyway, regardless. Yeah. Um, like, and it, it probably helped because you already knew me, but it still right. you were you came up and just said, "Hey, how you doing? Let's talk about basketball," and that yeah. was more, almost more important than anything you did either on the blog or in your project uh, over those two days.
1: Yeah. And I, I think you touch on a really important point, which is like the communication and kind of the, the human aspect of it. Um, a lot of times there's kind of this notion, like you said, which is that I will build this great model or I will do this great analysis or whatever. And like, that will be my ticket in, but like, you know, this isn't, like, a start and stop process, right? Like, you know, the end line isn't to necessarily work with a team. Like, you know, teams are for, you know, I think this will change over the next three years, like, if baseball is an indicator. But, like, you know, teams are have limited resources. And so, like, when they invest in analytics and they invest in those people, there's a lot of things that um, are really important. It can't just be this person to this great analysis this one time. There has to be a lot of hats that they have to wear, and communication is one of them, Um You'll, you know, analysts, um, in my experience, will be put in decision rooms and put in conversations where they have to communicate things to plenty of non technical stakeholders and um, being willing to communicate. And, and I think, um, in all of my experience, you know, there's no matter what industry you work in, there will always be people who are might rub you the wrong way. But I have always had positive experiences with the people I've interacted with the NBA analytics community and other sports. And so I think, um, you know, talking about it, right? Like that's where innovation, that's where new ideas, that's where changes and processes happen and it starts with communication. And even just saying like, hey, like, um, you know, I think for, so an example from the hackathon itself. So um, it was the next year we was at the hackathon, met an individual. And then the Kings were hiring an intern. And so um, I'm a part of, like, the the video interview. (laughs) And Luke's like, I think this person, like, the name comes up. And and Luke's like, I think this person, you might know this person. And lo and behold, it was someone who was at the hackathon who I had a very long conversation with, was very interesting. And and obviously they they demonstrated that they were extremely qualified technically and all that. But, like, it was, like, that moment where I was like, oh, wow, like, that had a very positive impact, and of course, this person um, his name's Taylor Spooner has been working I've been working with in some function over the last four or five years. so you know it's the importance of relationships um, especially when you t- when you do get into the team um, and work with people is like relationships will um, really matter in terms of making decisions like um, and it starts with just casual you know just conversations there's you know I think most people have the social etiquette to understand that like, Hey, like this question might not be a great one. Like, you know, asking about a specific player or a personnel decision probably might not be the greatest thing, but you can still talk about other things that bring value and are interesting.
0: I I mean, I almost think that that's even too transactional to even think of it that way. It's, it's first of all, just like talk, just be people. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't I don't know if there's a better way to put that, but I but I, I um it's sort of as you said, schedules are busy and a really important part of of kind of getting into sort of any intense industry is, hey, can I stand to be with this person for ten hours a day? <laughs> and that's and that has almost nothing to do with I don't wanna say nothing to do, but it has very little to do with kind of the technical qualifications for the job and just like, you know, is this person a good hang is, Mm -hmm. is not, is not a bad place to start. No, Especially when you consider, you know, the different
1: periods of the NBA season, like we're just coming off the trade deadline and I'm sure plenty of teams, um, had some long, long nights, um, you know, working through stuff. And so, especially the draft brings about that as well. And, um, you know, being, having, you know, yeah, being a being a human and being, uh, you know, uh, being able to generate, you know, discussion and be empathetic and and all that is is really important and it does bleed in. It is I found kind of helpful when it comes to, you know, when you are working with the team. And, and at, this is true, I think, in in any industry is having
0: these abilities, but um, especially in sports. How do you would you say that your experiences as a high level athlete yourself in you know a sport like swimming where it's it's long odd hours uh how would you say that that helped that that helped in in terms of sort of both having that ability to to just you know be pleasant to be around but also dealing with sort of a high pressure environment
1: Yeah I think um yeah it's It's been really helpful and I was very, I swam all four years at school. I I had, um, you know, I I had some success and and I was also really fortunate to like compete and have teammates who were exceptionally good. And I think the first thing you learn is, it's humbling first. Um, You learn to work with people who are massively better um, and more skilled Um, and with that you also learn that with those types of folks, you also get a range of personalities. Um, I, and as you would anywhere, but um, I think it definitely translates to sport in some way. Um,
0: and so being okay. able to, can I break in, remind yeah. me that I, I know that there's at least one Olympian that, that you swam with. Am I, am I misremembering?
1: Um, well, I had a couple. Uh, so there were the Dunford brothers who swam um, for South Africa um, we had a, several um several extremely excellent uh, NCA and um, Olympic, basically Olympic level swimmers. We had a couple guys just miss the team and you know the thing with swimming and um, uh, like it is with a lot of US sports is that you know they take the top two in the Olympics and if you know usually third place is probably good enough to be in the Olympic final and all that. So we had a couple teammates who were, um, just in that area, so. Um, but even just the program that I was a part of um, was, you know, steeped in Olympic success. Um, we had a streak uh, while I was there. I think it might have been broken in the last Olympics, uh, where basically we our team had always had at least one person um, on some Olympic team, um, which is pretty pretty crazy. Um, and so, yeah, like. You get a range of personalities there, um, and those are personalities and relationships that you have to navigate. Um, And with that team environment, you also get dysfunction. Um, And you have to understand how to balance relationships, how to balance what does this person respond to in this moment, and knowing that like, oh, hey, like, you know, Jim doesn't respond well if I talk to him like this or I give him this information, but like Bob is completely different and you have to have that social awareness and that just awareness of people in general. Um, and that's probably one of the things that I picked up the most. I mean, you know, from a training standpoint and, and the commitment and all that, like, um, I'm for better or for worse and capable of pushing long hours. If I have to, I, um, and it's probably not healthy, and it does wear off over time, <laughs> as I have found. Um, I think there was, like, a peak level that I am now on the backside of my uh, ability to do it. But, um, you know, I, th- I think the biggest thing it really was, like, the relationship aspect. Um, I felt very prepared going into um, a, a front office or a sports context and navigating those relationships. And, you know, if something bizarre ha- happens or someone says something or whatever, it's not like, When, when something bizarre happens. (laughs) Yeah, when, (laughs) that's a, that's a good way of putting it. When something bizarre happens, it's not, there's not like this, like, well, how could that person ever blah? It's like, oh no, no, no. If I put myself in their shoes, I think I can see it. And like, okay, this is not great, but like, okay, there's a, there's a ground we can work off.
0: So maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, But, uh, but did you, was Katie Ledecky on the swim team at the same time or was she training there at the same time you were there?
1: She started, so she deferred her freshman year. So my senior, so my final year swimming on the team was in 2015. And so she started the year after. So um, I just missed crossing, crossing paths with um, her time at Stanford, at least
0: uh, while we were both swimming. But that's—I mean—that's the kind of—I mean—if if there's the equivalent of—you of, know—someone at the end at the NBA star level in, in swimming. I mean, that's that's kind of what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, she is—you know—like the Sue Bird, like Diana Taurasi. You know, she's like that level of athlete and impact on sport. Um, it's crazy. I always joke that I got out of swimming at the right time because she started beating my times. So. <laughs> <laughs> just after but
0: yeah. So <laughs> and and this and I imagine that that, again, just that experience of of you mentioned it being humbling earlier. And I think that's a that's a, a very useful experience for someone coming into a, a professional front office in that there are people who have been doing things a long time and it's easy to on the outside like see all the mistakes and then Sort of ignore all the things that have that, that the person has achieved and gotten right to reach that point, and sort of navigating that um, both from a, a sort of respectful uh, um, standpoint but also just sort of a, a an acknowledgement of, of almost the hierarchy
1: yeah that's a hierarchy is a good way to phrase it. I think I don't know of any team in, across any sport that's really functioning on a has like a flat uh, organizational structure. Hierarchy
0: is real. Um, <laughs> Everyone says they're, they have a <laughs> flat and open, but it, it's, it is never remotely true. Um, oh, no. If, if anyone who's listening to this, if you're interviewing with the team and they try to pitch you on that, I don't, I'm not going to say run away, just like ignore that completely because <laughs> it's not true. Oh, it's definitely not true. There you will have your plenty of
1: closed-door meetings where certain people are there, certain, certain people aren't. And even just like you know when I was with the Kings... Um, uh, so my first two years I was tasked with kind of being our, working with, um, our coaching staff. Um, and typically when people are like, okay, there's an analyst working with the coaching staff, like, you know, I think it varies by team. So I'm, I can only share my experience, but like, you know, it's, it's not like you're in the, it's not like you're in necessarily in every film session, in every practice, in all the conversations that, um, the coaching staff has. Um, and so if you're trying, as an analyst, trying to present information to impact any type of on-court decision, um, you're going to run into a hierarchy. There are certain communication paths that you need to identify early if you want to be effective. So, for example, um, I was really fortunate to work with Jeff Newton, who is now the head coach of the Iowa Wolves, and then Colin Schneider, who's assistant coach at Southern Illinois. But they were kind of in the video room, um, in, with Dave's staff um, in Sacramento while I was there. And so, like, it was very clear early on that, like, if I was going to provide data to Dave in terms of what, was, what should happen or maybe a recommendation or whatever, the path was not to Dave. And that has, that has nothing to do with, like, you know, um, uh, speak to Dave as a person or anything. It's more just like he's a head coach of an NBA team, he has a lot of stuff he is focused on and worrying about. But what was more important was saying, like, hey, like, if we wanted to, like, maybe change, like, provide insight why, like, a certain lineup might be better than another, you know, it was actually going through Jeff and Colin and understanding, like, that relationship and that part of, you know, the quote-unquote hierarchy was a more effective route to, um, you know, at least get information in front of the coaches. And and every staff's different, and so, like, I don't mean, this is not, like, a projection on every team. um, But, like, that is, like, something that I had, you know, you have to like you have to, as an analyst, you have to identify it. Um, but once I recognized my place and understood where all the cogs fit, that was not an adjustment for me. Like I, I understand that element. Um, and so that was kind of like just a very, uh, you know, one element of, you know, humble, um, and also like, you know, there are cases where you you know you'll do analysis, and I'm sure you ran into it in your experience as well, where you'll put together a nice deck or presentation or something, and the coach will look at it, and they'll put it down, and that's it. And you might have spent hours on it, <laughs> days, <laughs> weeks, and that's humbling. That's another form of humbling. Um, and so those are all things that you navigate and can be frustrating. And you know I laugh now, but like, it's it's just something that. Um, you know, you, you it's uh, it, humbling. Is sometimes negative. But I think it, it can be. A, a, I view it as a positive in this case.
0: And another thing that that's, that can be a negative and and kind of tends to be portrayed as such as and we were talking about like hierarchies and stuff like that. But in terms of of information and information transfer, it's a necessity. Um, it's it's the same way. Why when as an analyst in the public, you pick and choose which pieces of information you've you've come up with you decide to surface and how to put them together into a, a compelling narrative i mean that that, that you, you mentioned as the head coach of an nba team or a general manager of an nba mm-hmm. team there's a lot going on and you don't have time to the the deep minutiae you just don't have time so that has to be Simplified before it gets to you, and there are several levels of that. The first one is is sort of you as the analyst, your internal, um, like okay, now this isn't a thing, or if someone asks, I'll tell them about, but this isn't what I'm going to lead with. And then it's you know again, as you're saying, you you have your your kind of your first conduit in your case, and in many cases, it's either kind of a, the, the film room or a specific assistant coach, um, and then that then it's sort of combined with I don't know other other topicing points or, or, or focuses or what, what have you of what the team is looking at. And then it gets sort of, it moves up, it gets simplified and moves up the chain by rows so that it, when it gets to the ultimate decision maker, it's the, it's the, the tippiest toppiest of the iceberg, but there's mm-hmm. like 10 icebergs that they're, <laughs> that they're navigating around and through. And so they need enough to decide like on all those things. And, and that's a, that's a complex process to do that. Right. To make sure that the, um, the key bits of the information make it to the ultimate decision maker in a way that they can incorporate. And yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. Like I think, and how you get to that point is, is on the analyst. like how you get to the point of saying like the, this is the information I'm going to surface. Um, and then, like, the community, you know, this is the, so, you know, you might come up with, like, uh, some sort of data point that is, you know, this is it. Like, this is the thing that needs to be communicated. You know, then the art of saying, like, this is how it should be communicated, the method and manner, is is even another thing. Like, that, depending on how it is crafted, and we talk about narratives and, and all that, but, like, ultimately, that's how the human mind functions. That's how we operate socially, is we build narratives around things you know our experiences and all that and so um, I was really lucky we we're working um, with Judd Winton in the Clippers he was one of the best people I've personally worked with at doing that taking data and creating um, a kind of basically a synthesized point that needs to be communicated to the staff and like I, I think I was able to kind of see that and you learn a language more or less. Um I think another thing, too, going back to the hierarchy, as you kind of described, as you move up the chain, is, like, you're not um, – so, for example, when – in my work here at Zealous, like, I am working with a lot of technic- technical people, technically minded. So, like, when I, you know, bring something up to Luke or I bring something to uh, Jacob or other people I work with, like, we speak very similar languages. We understand the same concepts that we're communicating about but like when you get into a team aspect like that gap between you know the analyst to the next person in the chain wherever it is like probably doesn't have like that technical expertise so not only are you navigating like oh this has to be pushed up and I have to summarize it but also like there's it's like a a game of telephone where everyone's using a different form of communication
0: (laughs) up the path (laughs) Right. And it's and it's sort of uh, if you're you're talking to someone on the team side, it's like, well how'd you figure this out? And you start talking about, Well, I put it through a neural network. Like, <laughs> what? I, I like I, this is a lesson I, I learned the hard time is someone a, someone asked me, like one of our one of our, our the higher ups in our scouting department once asked me, so um this this adjusted plus minus statistic, what is this? And so I was like, do you know what a regression is? And they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Crap. Um, so, it, it, like, figuring out how to explain these which things which are, on one level, very complex, and another, very simple. I mean, it's just, hey, this is basically, instead of saying it's a regression, this is, hey, this is a, a technique that we know who you're on the floor with and who's on the floor against you. And you figure out, based on that, who has likely had that most impact like yeah that's a very that's a correct but completely non-technical description of of what that is and that's like um if if you've built up enough trust with the person they can leave it at that and if not like well how do you know and then it's like well we don't have enough time for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of courses and stuff yeah
1: <laughs> yeah i mean like just the interpretability part and like that's kind of on the ed- yeah, honestly you bring up regression all that it's like there's like every team, pretty much every team, I'm assuming I'll just say every team has some sort of draft model. Um, and so like interpretability is a huge component because, you know, if you think like, OK, coaching is probably one of the um, harder things to impact, I think, as an analyst, um, just because um, there's a lot of nuances there. There's a lot of context. There's just there's just it, it's a harder bridge to gap, I think, for the analyst to the coach. As say the analysts into the draft room or into the draft process or the free agency process, and if you, I have plenty of <laughs> moments and experiences where like having something that is interpretable that can be conveyed, it makes a massive difference um, in the conversations you can have if you are trying to, you know, push up the the candidacy of one draft prospect or a free agent prospect or whatnot. It's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of push for, you know, shiny modeling approaches. And I think they are excellent. But when you get to the practitioners and all that, like, there has to be a step, if you are going from something very complex, um, of communicating it, or even if you have something simple, just just thinking about those those communications. Like, I think the the best one I, I think I heard it, and this was from you, this is, I, I took this one from you. So, all credit to you is that when you think about the draft and you think about your draft model and all that, and it's like, you know, the, the classic question is like, well, why is this guy good? Why do you, you, know, why do we like him so much? Um, and you know, explaining that, like, Hey, like, you know, with this guy and I think most draft models work like this, but you know, if you took away one of his skills, he would still be really good at a couple things. And so I think you phrased it that way of like, Hey, like, if you took away this guy's best skill in the NBA, like whatever you think it is, you choose, what do you have left? And if you still have a good player, like, he's still good at rebounding, shooting, or whatever, then, like, okay, like, you have, like, something. Um, and that all, that worked well with me, and I credit to you on that one. Well,
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. That's that's nice. Uh, that's nice to hear. Um, I was actually going <laughs> to stick with sort of the draft model thing, and this is, you know, getting into the realm of if you could sort of flip the tables around and, and like, you know, go to a a, a coach or a, or a, a front office decision maker and say, "Here, help me help you. Uh, here's here's a better way for you to seek the information you want." And we're starting with like the draft model, and this is something that was sometimes frustrating to me. Is this like, I just want to see what your your draft model rankings? And I was like, mm, No, no, you don't. <laughs> like it's like you may think that, but you but you don't because you're like. That's just, that's even for, even for me, the analyst, that's just one data point. And like the, the, the process you're talking about now of, well, this guy has only one way to be good. So I'm not as high on him. That's not something that comes out of a model per se. That's, that's model plus experience plus understanding of the subject matter. So if you, you know, this is, I, I know like me, you talk to a bunch of people who do similar jobs, um, Hey, if 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 a coach came up to you and said, Hey, help me, like, help me figure out how to best use what you had, what would what would be some advice you'd give to them?
1: Oof, that is a good question. I think the simplest thing is, you know, I think especially when you get to coaching, for example, is like every coach is gonna have their style. Um, they're gonna have certain things, concepts they're gonna want to run, and all that. And I think the biggest mistake is like going in and saying, like, hey, like we're going to change how you cover pick and roll or like, you know, you can data actually can now answer that with second spectrum, all that, but like, you know, and that might've been a bad example, but like getting, there's a fine line of like providing information that can give guide overall strategy and telling a coach how to coach. You should avoid the latter. Never tell a coach how to coach. It goes poorly every time. If you want to lose <laughs> trust, it's the quickest way you can do it. Um,
0: so, is, I think, is, is, that, is that what you guys did at Stanford swimming? Is that how you covered the pick and roll? Yeah. At Stanford? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right?
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Um, I think so, you know, avoid telling a coach how to coach. And I think, you know, as an analyst, the one thing that analysts are, are extremely apt at doing is understanding um, uncertainty. And you can use uncertainty to basically boil down what you do present. So, like, for example, like, we know that three points are better than two points. Um, We know that is, like, a a fact. Now, I know I don't want to get too much into, like, you know, the debate between, you know, how much mid-range is good mid-range. But, like, you can convey certain points, certain kind of truisms that you feel confident in. Uh, Maybe it's how to use your challenges. Maybe it's... um, your fouling strategy given certain time. Um, You know, some things like that. um, You can, basically, I'd come to a coach and say, hey, like, let's identify just, like, some key concepts that we can um, prove with data, because with data we can determine, like, how certain we are this thing actually is impactful, and then create a very simple report that says, like, hey, like, yes, no, we did accomplish this or not. Like, I think a big mistake that, um, you know, something that over time that I've and the work that we do with, um, Toulouse with Redbird is just like understanding that like, um, we don't need necessarily like this massive post-game report, right? Like, especially in the NBA, when the schedule is so demanding, like coaches just don't have time, let alone mental energy to kind of like break down those things. So like, you know, my advice to coaches say, what are three concepts that we want to do this year? Maybe it's, you know, we want to increase our three-point attempt rate because we know that, like, that's better. Or maybe we want to um, use our challenges better so we track how do we use them in, in the outcome. Or maybe um, uh, certain, you know, maybe they have certain plays that they really want to run. So you spend more time documenting, like, how well those are run out of um, timeouts and all that. Um, create just a simple checklist, like, knowing that the data backs that these things are, are true, they're not, like, you know, kind of pseudoscience or, like, you know, personal opinion on how basketball should be played. And track them and create a small little one-pager that says, like, hey, like, this is how we did today. Good, bad, okay? Let's. That's a discussion point for saying, hey, are we on track? And also, B, if it's not happening, okay, well, did we? are we tracking the wrong thing? Are we trying to instill the wrong concept? Um, or maybe we need to think about this more. I think simplifying it is... Um, My advice to coaches and staffs is to simplify what you want um, and then find measurable ways uh, or ways to measure it repeatedly and track it and have um, dialogues about like, Hey, like, you know, Hey, we've every game we've hit this three point attempt rate um, and we've lost every game. Okay. Maybe that it wasn't a good one (laughs) or maybe there's something there to talk about. And I think, that's a more valuable
0: use of data. <laughs> or, or, hey, hey, uh, folks upstairs, get get me some more shooters, please. We're, we're, right. we're playing the right way. We just can't hit the broadside of a barn, and that's not my
1: fault. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I think, um, you know, those are, like, keeping it simple. And, and when I was working with the Kings, I think some of the things that I've always reflected on as things I would have done better is, is making it simpler. Like, eventually, you know, our post-game report... Started at um, uh, several pages. I know some teams put together lots of pages. I'm, I'm sure you guys had a mini page report with the Bucks, but like by the end of it, by, by the time I left, it was one page. Um, our work with Toulouse, it's one page. And if we could make it simpler, we would make it simpler. Um, one of the biggest uh, uh, side, a small story, is um, my first year with the Kings, we were like, you have second spectrum data, provides like the expected probability shot goes in and all that. And so with that, you can kind of hack together an expected score for a game. And in our heads, as analysts, we're like, well, hey, like, what if we just put the expected score down on the post-game report, right? And so, like, you know, because, like, from a coach's, you know, we thought, you know, us putting our coach's hat on, our coach's suit on at the time, you know, oh, well, if we, you know, lose a game, but, you know, we actually should have won based on expected points and all that, like, that would be good. The coach would want to know that. What we didn't think about, though, is the opposite, when you win a game, you shouldn't have won, and how the coaches might react in that situation. I'll never forget. We So we had this expected score, and then, um, and this was my first year. I remember we um, it was like right before New Year's. The, the Kings at the time, this is the 17-18 season, beat the Cavs, so LeBron was still on the Cavs. Big win, whatever. Exciting for Sacramento. Expected score said we should have lost that game. Then, like January first, a couple days later, we play at Memphis and we lose by like a million points. And expected score, so we should have won. And I never forget. The coach got back after the trip from Memphis and it was like takes the report, throws it down on the table, and he was like, he was like, we won the Cleveland game and we lost the Memphis game, <laughs> and he walks out. And so, you know, the the lesson of the story is simple: is always better um, and being aligned with the coaching staff in terms of what you are tracking is even more important. That's how you kind of can build trust and use it as a starting point to build, you know, better analysis, maybe analysis that you personally think the coaching staff should go but might not be ready for.
0: And the meta point there, and this applies both to working with coaches and front offices, but also I mean, if people who are working in more of a, kind almost a player development role with players, is that um, people are very uncomfortable in dealing with uncertainty. Oh, yeah. So, like you, you or I say, yeah. Well, you know that you know we 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 play that game a hundred times. Given the shots, both teams got. We only get. We're only going to win it fifteen or twenty times. Like, I know what that means. You know what that means. Um, uh, coach doesn't want to hear that. And just because they're not, they're just they, they they like by sort of training and inclination. Like, there's a reason that people who go into statistical analysis do is they. I think part of it is kind of the comfort with. You know, randomness and uncertainty. and that's that's, I don't think a common trait. and certainly in in the given the lack of almost a statistical education that that people come through now. but that's yeah. a whole other topic, but that's that I mean that's that's sort of the the key challenge, whether working with with coaches or or front office, is um, explaining situations where uncertainty is pretty important in a way that kind of hides that (laughs) because like the, I don't know of uncertainty is, is almost, is, is uh, almost more dangerous to credibility than being wrong.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, and there's no better place than the draft, right? Like the draft is like this, uh, you know, the draft brings up a lot of interesting kind of relationships that I think an analyst has to navigate. But, um, like, if you think about what the role of a, a scout is, right? Like, generally, I, every team treats their scouts differently, but, like, a, a role of a scout is, like, to make bold, more or less kind of make bold proclamations. Like, a scout's never going to, like, you know, say, well, like, you know, I think this guy's, like, could be a starter, or, like, eh, like, he's probably a G. They're going to tell you, like, very matter-of-fact. Um, and a lot of, like, their job is kind of based on that. Whereas, like, you know, my experience kind of, Presenting Draft models and for various drafts is like you have to as an analyst you have to stake your your flag on the hill of uncertainty you have to be honest about that and that those are like you can't have more polarizing situation and oftentimes analytics can get drowned out in a draft process because of the uncertainty that uh, analysts are more comfortable working with, and the other people in the room don't aren't comfortable with, and also prefer just like, you know, this guy told me
0: my opinion, and that's it. <laughs> I, I, I would actually flip that and say that the the discomfort of analysts in making bold, bold bold proclamations is really more of the hard part because it is it is an environment where you know volume matters, and it's just like ah well I don't know I'm trying to be responsible here, and it's just sometimes you just gotta like. No, I'm sure this guy's going to be good. I'm not sure at all. <laughs> I'm, but I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it. And it's just like, I think almost like everyone else is sort of pricing in that bombast, and we are we are taking it literally. Um, yeah. And that's probably, that's a disadvantage that, that I certainly never found a way to really like, work my way past, even if intellectually I knew what was going on.
1: Yeah, they they count me in that group as well. I think, like, you know, you have to um, – it's an organizational thing. And and I think, you know, going back to, like, the hierarchy and just how different people relate um, within an organization is oftentimes, like, a lot of these – one, NBA teams organizations turn over people too quickly. Um, Like, you know, second, like, different groups of people or or hires are brought in at – odd times or not within consistent time so you you might bring in an analyst who's working with the coaching staff but like coaching staff might not have been involved in that hire or they might not be their guy right and so then like you're dealing with certain issues there and so i think it starts with like um uh an organization like a consistent approach to like this is how things will run um and that's not to say like this has to be daydream. We're just talking about having a scientific process to evaluate <laughs> uh, decisions. You can you can make up whatever that process could be. You know, you, it could be rolling the dice every time. Or you know, we always joked it would be great to have the draft lottery, uh, uh, pinball machine uh, choose where we went to lunch every day. Like you, that could be your selection process. But the idea is having a consistent process so everyone. Awesome. Isn't that great? We'd put what, all I the places.
0: E talk about reducing decision fatigue. Like oh my God. what do you want for like that like honestly, this is so this is, you know, kind of silly, but like oh, that, you could I like, am not sure which would be the, the, the harsher argument. It's like who do we want to take with our pick or where do we want to order lunch from today? Oh like, yeah. Those those could be equally like like toxic arguments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's I do not, not want Indian
1: food today. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, or no, we don't, all of us collectively don't want Indian food today. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, but even, so like, I think like having different parameters where you can say like, hey, this is like a process and this is how we integrate it. And that's something that I spend quite a bit of my time now thinking about is is how do you, how do we do that with um, kind of our partner clubs and all that. And so, But that's ultimately a lot of the disconnect and the hierarchy issues and communication stuff just starts with like, it's just kind of can end up being a hodgepodge of things. Um, and there's also definitely a lack of time provided to the people who are put in these positions to actually, um, create a framework where like, you know, Hey, everyone in the room can handle uncertainty and Hey, like, you know, maybe not everyone can handle uncertainty, but we know how to navigate it, and we've built up relationships long enough such that we can talk about it.
0: <laughs> Instead of just sort of pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, which is also bad. What what, what could go wrong? Um, last thing on this, I kind of want to... And then I think, if, if, if it's okay with you, we might get into some talk about uh, what we've seen this so, so far this season. Yeah. Um, um, so you... you, you with the kings you there's two very different roles you filled one is sort of front office facing and that's you know there's difficulties there but that's more straightforward the you mentioned that the coaching staff might not have any involvement with the hiring of the coaching analyst and i think this is changing a little bit but that's more often true than it is not and that inherently puts you in a weird spot so because As much as everyone likes to talk about organizational alignment, there's often, like, at minimum, the time horizons of the front office and the coaching staff are going to be very different. And that can be navigated well, or it can lead to um, something resembling open warfare. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, at risk of of, of asking you to spill some tea, which I'm really not trying to do, um, (laughs) um, you know, like... How does one manage that? Where you can, and I've heard this from people with other teams. It's like, like you're viewed as a spy, and I'm not saying you are. I've heard that Mm -hmm. from people with other teams. So that's like a difficulty in doing their job. So,
1: yeah, it's to be honest. Like I was in that type of position, so I was fortunate to be brought on with kind of um, Luke's revamp of the Kings' analytics group. Um, There was no. Um, as far as I am aware, there wasn't really any, there was no coordination between, you know, who was hired and who would do what and, and then the stakeholders that would have been involved. And so, um, when ultimately I was tasked with working with the coaching group, there was no relationship with anyone there. Um, um although Jeff had worked with, um, some of the people in the, the video room had worked with other people I knew at the Clippers, but there's no no starting point. Um, and I think a lot of like the resistance that coaching staffs have to like, you know, the idea of having an analyst in the room is a lot of it is just you know, some scar tissue. They've likely or have had friends or um, former coaches that they've worked with been burned in situations where they felt that the analyst supplied some sort of information to the front office that led to their front. Whether that was true or not, who knows? I have no idea. But there's some scar tissue there. And I remember, you know, I was not a part of like the coaches meetings or anything like that, or even any of the pregame kind of discussion. And I think, I think it's because a lot of teams deal with it. Part of it was just that, you know, like, Hey, um, like there isn't enough trust built up here. Um, and which is totally fair. And I respect that. It's a hard thing to then navigate because then like your job as an analyst becomes a lot harder because you have like one of the biggest areas where you can touch and talk and, um, be a part of discussions um is removed um so you know i think it's all about kind of what i said earlier which is like identify people that are already great communicators with the coach have insight um, into the styles with which they prefer to be communicated to um, identify those people and then that is kind of your path to navigate those tricky situations Um, and it's it's just a product of, um, you know, I don't think it's anyone's fault. You know, maybe one time long ago, you know, someone legitimately burned someone and we're just looking at, you know, the butterfly effect. But, um, you know, it's all about understanding that, like, there's a lot of people who go into making a, a NBA team work and function at a high level, um, you know, obviously including the head coach and the GM um, but there's all other people and establishing those relationships and understanding that those can be used to help push information forward is, is important that's how I always viewed it it was tricky um, but you know you 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 have to basically yeah it's all about identifying key relationships and partnerships and, and and hopefully be given time to let those blossom and develop
0: so, Let's let's switch from there to now that you're you are no longer in the league. Um, you know how how do you see the, how you see everything that happens different? Or do you see everything that happens differently? Is it the kind of thing that you weren't you weren't sort of aware of how the sausage was made, and now you are? Or did you have, did you have kind of some awareness of it going in, and now or just very maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, or, but I'm now really? very cynical about the process. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
1: fun. It's, I'm in a really u- unique position now. So the the group that I'm kind of sp- split some of my time with is, is focused on like, how do we build an efficient, how do we build uh, a very disciplined process orientated kind of sports organization? Um, we're in a different sport, which has been a fun and uh, learning uh, a steep learning curve for me, but I've thoroughly enjoyed. But I think the biggest thing now that I step outside is understanding that like you know there's a lot of complexities that are introduced for no reason there's a lot of wasted time um, there's a lot of analysis that um, don't need to be happened like you know analysts are everyone on the nBA front office is is has a lot of jobs and a lot of responsibilities and they definitely don't have it's more than twenty four hours in a day um, and so like silly thing like I, you know, this might be a little bit of a hot take, but like breaking down who's your 15th man on the roster, not important, right? Not important. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've done analysis where I looked at jump ball win percentage, not helpful, not at all. Interesting, but <laughs> not helpful. There's all sorts of things that can be streamlined when you take a step back and understand, okay, what are we trying to um, accomplish? What are our, our, our steps? And so like, When I have now taken a step back, um, I've been able to see and work with a group of people that also understand this as well. Um, And like, you know, obviously some teams don't, like it's, I think what I have said isn't necessarily revolutionary to anyone who works with a team, um, but um, it's just kind of an artifact of how the process goes. So first I look at it as, you know, there's a lot of things that didn't need to be done that could have been, time could have been allocated in other areas. Um, and then, you know, from the course of the season, I think the biggest thing I've learned is like, the season's really long. Don't get caught up if your team wins three games in a row, right? That's in basketball and paper. <laughs> I think there's a chapter of like, should you buy playoff tickets if your team's won three in a row? And uh, Dean goes into a whole bunch of stuff. But um, understanding that, like, hey, um, long season. Teams will go on streaks. People will get hurt, um, and all that has basically allowed me to further kind of strengthen my view, having a long view, um, in terms of how I look at a season and and the dy- dynamics within it.
0: And that's and and that viewpoint can often make you I don't know I don't know if unpopular is the right word, but sort of out of step with with the people you're working with in in, in an organization. Because even even like the the, the because you spend so much time on it, there is a little bit of living and dying every game, and sort of, you know, our role as analysts, it's like, well, let's let's flatten that out a little bit, like, you yeah. know, it's it's you know, we're not looking at the next game and the next game and the next game. We're looking at the next game as one group, next five games, as one group of things, and then kind of seeing how we were then, um, but and sort of flattening the the results out that way, but. For many people, it's it's a little more emotive than that, and that's that 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 can also often be the source of of conflict.
1: Well, and a, and a lot of it too is just what I've kind of learned now is just like a lot of it is just changing your mindset, changing, and that's obviously harder than or easier for me to say, but it's it's basically saying like, what are we going to measure as our success metric? Like, is our success metric going to be did we win yesterday's game, or is it going to be like hey, we feel confident that we've been repeating these things over and over that will eventually lead to success. I think if you change, like, not you personally, but like if teams and, and groups change kind of how they view what success should be, like you can do wonders for your blood pressure and your <laughs> health and mental health and all the things that really matter. Um, and, you know, I I, the, I think it was the 2019-20 season, Um the Kings had just come off. We just come off the 1819 season, which was like the, the one of the best seasons, I think, in a while, or at least some since the DeMarcus era. Um, and there was a lot of hope going into that season. Like, hey, like we, you know, Darren's turned the corner, we're gonna hit this. And I think I'm pretty certain we started 0-3, maybe 0-5, and there was a lot of like organizational panic about like, oh no, what's happening? It's like, hey, like, there's eighty-two games. Of course, COVID then happened later, but um, so that changed obviously everything, but um, I, I just remember being in that situation, just saying, like, yeah, you become very unpopular. People are like, well, how can you not care? Like, we're we're struggling, and, and it's just like, well, no, 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 no. It's like, have faith in what you've done. Have trust <laughs> that you guys, we've done the right decisions that, you know, after 82 games, we'll look back and be like, wow, that was a great, like, we did great, or, or hopefully.
0: Sure. So... Before I, before, I let, before I get you out of here, I um, want to open the floor if you have, if you have hot takes on this basketball season, since you know we, are, uh, we try to avoid that in, in our day jobs, but it's not your day job anymore. So yeah, so uh, g- give me a flaming oh. hot take about the, about <laughs> the NBA completely. And wow. This is funny because because uh, Chris is a friend of mine and, and like not only is he is he professionally not into, it's just by by sort of personality and and nature like I'm 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 asking him to stand on his head basically so
1: yeah um, gosh I have an unrelated story I'll tell you next time about standing on my can't do handstands uh, learned that the hard way um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, gosh hot takes yeah I am conditioned and I've been further conditioned over time not to have hot takes. I think – I mean, let's – trade deadline was yesterday. I felt there was a lot of – I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't caught up all – I haven't read all the analysis yet, but I think there's a lot of people who weren't fans of the the Harden-Simmons trade uh, for Philly. They thought, like, Philly kind of gave up a lot. And my hot take is that uh, it was a good trade for them And because I think ultimately people don't realize, like, teams are op- – not every team is trying to win a championship – um, I think there are 30 unique, there's probably like 25 unique um, goals that teams have. And I would say like, I don't even know, is saying James Hart, the trade for Philly was good? Is that a, is that a hot take? Or
0: where I don't know I if it's a hot take. This is, this is something I was, I was thinking of <laughs> kind of towards the end of the day yesterday is like, I kind of, when the trade happened, I was like, oh, I think Philly gave it too much here. And then I was like, if they'd have made this trade a month ago, what would I have thought about it? And is yeah. like oh well good 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 job Philly would have been my day so just you know kind of the the life comes at you fast aspect of that and you know obviously this is a that's a situation where the the dynamics of the changing leverage played out in a very public fashion mm-hmm. but it's still just like all right if you just said but, but at the beginning of the year that you could trade. A guy who's not playing for you and you know, a decent role player and your backup center and yeah, a pick or two for a guy who's been, you know, a perennial MVP candidate, like, okay, that's that's certainly flattening some things about, you know, what Harden's been since he earned his hamstring in the playoffs last year and his age and so on and so forth. But just if you those parameters, it's just like okay. Like well that sounds great. Sign me up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well and if
1: it in their move I think maybe this is, I think most people in the community understand, but it's just like, I think their whole goal is to win a championship. And I think Daryl's strategy is to like get star power. That's like kind of been, that was what he was doing in Houston. Is just like, let's just try to find the next, like try to find the next high end guy to pair with, with James. And like, this is just kind of a continuation of this with Embiid and James. And so I think like they probably achieved what they want. And like, if they win an NBA champ, and that's what I think people might not understand. It's like, if they win an NBA championship, like, boom, who cares, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, and also, it's,
0: it's really hard, and they're probably going to fail, right? Because that's, like, math.
1: You know, there's... <laughs> that's another really important point. We probably don't have time to talk about it, but just understanding the distribution of, yeah. like, ranges of outcomes, like, yeah. being on the tail,
0: you know, the very end of the good uh, one is, takes a lot of luck. And I think, I, and I think that's you know to, to to maybe you don't want to talk about this, but getting back to, um, I've softened a little bit. I when it first came out, the the, the trade the Kings made for for Monas um, the they basically, basically the, the visceral reaction was not was really hating it, and it, and you think about it, like okay, they got they got theirs, the best player in the trade, he's going to be the best player in the trade this year, probably next year, um, but if we're talking about that sort of right tail outcome of okay, if you're if, if things go ninety percent right, where are you? Like, that's lower than it was before. Now if for a team that is in the situation of, of where Sacramento is, do you care? And right. you, you care some, but it but like, you know, the the relative weight between like like, you know, the the Nets, the, the Sixers, the Bucks, the Suns, the Warriors pick one or two other team, they they don't give a crap what the 50th percentile outcome is. Because mm-hmm. they, they know that's not good enough. Right. So exactly. they're thinking in one part of it, and for a team maybe lower down, like, on average, does this get us into the postseason? Right. And, you know, you, you quibble if you want of whether that's a worthy goal or not, but it's just a very different way of, of framing things. And... and probably changes the value of the players involved completely. Oh, absolutely. I
1: think, like, there is, um, you know, I think having, like, players like Tyrese on these rookie contracts, like, they are, you know, a really good player on a rookie contract there's probably no better about. Well, well, so this is the thing that I, we ran into when you evaluate contracts and players, right? It's like, you know, you, if you built a team with the best net positive contracts, you're probably not an NBA championship team. Like, ultimately, like, there is correlation between pay and success. And obviously the salary, like, you know, max contract and all that causes sor- all sorts of issues. But imagine you're in soccer where you have uh, no salary cap, which <laughs> we don't operate under as, well, we, we, uh, we
0: operate under a little bit of different pressure. Financial parameters. fair play is sort of a salary cap. Sort of. <laughs> a, a very gameable salary cap. Yeah, a fun
1: a fun uh, analysis is, uh, yeah, looking at some of the top spending of some of the top teams and how it varies for their league. But, you know, I think ultimately it, it costs money to have good players. And, like, you know, I think that was something, like, I think Chris Paul was probably, he's been someone who's stayed healthy, and that's really helped his value. But, like, he was on a big contract, and, like, oftentimes people are like, ah, oh, big contract, they can't be good. And it's like, hey, like, he's probably fair value and a lot of money. But, like, those type, getting, adding players who increase, like, raise your floor um, are, are really good. Um, they might not be that positive contracts. So they might be fair value. They might be slightly negative. But, like, ultimately you need players who kind of raise that floor, raise your base rate. Um, and that's probably what, you know, I don't, I say in touch with my former Analytics folks and, and friends of the Kings, but I am no, by no means, in touch with anything that goes on there. But I think, like, you know, my personal opinion is like if they they added a, a good player, and sometimes it costs
0: <laughs> you have to give up something. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think that, that just to wrap up, um, uh, I think that what, what you're describing about like the most dollar efficient players is sort of mistaking a few things because like we talk so much in terms of salary cap, just like that's, that's a very obvious way to look at the game and, you know, uh, playing fantasy leagues and, and what have you. Um, but the, but NBA teams are, that's not, they're not just maximizing against that constraint. Like you have 15 roster spots and four and 240 minutes a night. And so you like, you're, you have to maximize your, your, your wins basically. Across all three of those, and what you're saying, like yeah, the dollar efficient guys, dollar efficient guys can't give you 240 good minutes a night, right. and to get to and to get to that, you'd have to have a 30 person roster. So okay, that doesn't work. So now we have to uh, we have to get, pay more for some players who are you know more minute efficient, um, and until you get up to the you know the, the 10 guys who are worth a max contract, who probably aren't available then yeah, you're, you're going to be paying over the odds, but you have to balance those things against each other. Exactly. You
1: can't build like a roster. All like, I mean, you could build a roster of all rookie guys, but it's, you know, it's not going to be, um, you know, if you're trying to achieve some sort of above the 65th percentile outcome, like you're going to have to, you know, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> you know, analytics provide, does provide an edge in terms of identifying talent and, you know, increases your ability not necessarily guaranteeing your ability to uh get good contracts and build an efficient roster but at the end of the day like there is strong correlation between how much guys get paid and how good they are um not perfect and so like you know i think like i I, tyrese is probably going to be awesome in indiana and he will be a great player and i think sabonis will be a great fit for what the kings want and like That's that's okay, (laughs) like that's good. Uh, It was one of the rare trades where we'd always joke um, uh, when I was with the Kings. Is you know when a fair or when a trade comes in where you think both teams won, Um, and I feel like this was one of them. And it's okay to be
0: sad if a favorite player moves or whatnot. Sure. Well, that that was a very lukewarm hot take you gave me. So I'm I'm not very good at hot takes. No, I know it's 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 annoying. (laughs) Um, <laughs> I've been I, trained too well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, but let, let, I think that that's a good spot to wrap up. So, uh, you know, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, this is as much as anything. This is just a good excuse to chat for a while since we haven't for a while. So, uh, yeah. So, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's always a great chat. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you uh, another time.
0: All right, folks. Thanks for listening. I think I am back on. It's what I don't even remember what day it is I think I'm back on Monday and I can't even remember who I've scheduled so I will uh, <laughs> I will talk to you then thanks for listening and have a good weekend